To me, the biggest crisis in this country is a lack of democratic engagement. I know that we have this horrible ignorance of one another's suffering. We literally have a common pain in this country, but we're lacking a common purpose. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Cory Booker represents New Jersey in the U.S. Senate. He's a Democrat. In today's show, he talks about the problems Democrats and all Americans need to confront to move the U.S. forward. He thinks Republicans and Democrats need to unite to solve problems like poverty and inequality. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show features a conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival in early July called, How Can the Democrats Get Their Groove Back? As you'll hear, Senator Cory Booker takes issue with the title of the talk. He thinks people of all political parties have similar problems to confront. Still, the Democrats face an uphill battle. Republicans control the House, Senate, and the White House. Democrats hold the lowest number of state legislative seats since the turn of the 20th century. And the number of governors who are Democrats is at its lowest since the 1920s. In this discussion with Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, Cory Booker addresses some of the problems within the party, but also discusses the larger issues facing all Americans. Here's Amy Walter. And so what I wanted to do in this session, and, I, and of course I'm going to involve you all too at the, at the very end here to ask some questions, sort of thinking about the Democratic Party as somebody who is a standard bearer of the party, has been very active in the party, and then to talk a little bit about the past, a little bit about the future, and a little bit about what the Democratic Party is, where it's going, going forward. And with that, Senator Booker, let's, I don't want to spend too much time in 2016. We spent a lot of time with postmortems and discussions, but I just wanted to start with two important points. Uh, the first is uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, ran on a message of stronger together. For those folks who were at the convention or watched Senator Booker's speech, he echoed many of those same sentiments that rugged individualism is great, but we got to where we are because we worked as a team, and that diversity is good, and uh, that we need to work with each other. And, and again, it was this m very much similar to the Stronger Together theme. And yet... Nobody remembers my speech because I spoke right before Michelle Obama. Oh. And <laughs> she had a my mom time. comes up to me afterwards, what a great speech. I'm like, thank you, mom. Thank you. She goes, no, not yours. Michelle. <laughs> right. Michelle. Well, that's actually a perfect segue because... So you talked about this. Michelle Obama, of course, said, when they go low, we go high. And yet, Stronger Together didn't win. Go low, go high, that didn't really win either. So was the message off? Was there, was there a disconnect between the message that Democrats were giving and that wasn't resonating? Or was it about the messenger? I just want to say, I, I, I bristled a little bit about the title of this, about Democrats, because I really wish, I almost felt like this was pushing away people that I really wish were here, like I, uh, that Republicans would be in this room or independents would be in this room, not just people who are looking for wisdom about the Democratic Party. To get to sort of the, the, the soul of the question, you know, why, why was the Democratic Party something that my family got swept up on and so many people had allegiance to and love for? Um, I'm the guy that's a grandson of a man who, until the day he died, bragged to me 
about turning 14 districts in Michigan from Republican to Democrat. As many people will remember, blacks in America used to be Republicans. And the saying was, turn Lincoln's picture to the wall. Uh, and my grandfather was so happy to be working for FDR. And as I grew up, uh, I wasn't just a Democrat because my parents were Democrats and my grandparents were Democrats. Uh, I really found myself loving my party because of its history and its traditions. This was the party of civil rights. This is the party of women's rights. This is the party of gay rights. This is the party of we, not the party of me. It's the party of inclusion. It's the party of so many of the values, workers' rights, that so uh, defined the character of this country and so inspired me. And I know a lot of people look to this past election and really the data governorships, state legislatures, uh, and look at it as a, as a source and a challenge, and, and frankly, what I see every day, the House and the Senate and the White House um, all being controlled by the Republican Party. Um, but but I, I, fi I find myself sort of bristling a little bit about that um, because King said something so eloquently. He said the problem today that we have to repent for is not just the vitri uh, vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And, and what do I mean by that in this context? And uh, there was a low mo moment in my life after an election uh, where I felt incredibly painful. And it really, what I'm talking about, the low moment, it wasn't 2016, uh, waking up on November uh, 9th. Uh, it was, for me, uh, the day after the election on, in November in 2009. Um, because that was the day that New Jersey, as I was mayor of an inner city, and New Jersey elected a Republican governor. Uh, you all don't know my governor in New Jersey, but his name is, his name is Chris Christie. And, and this was jarring for me because the year before, when I left Hawthorne Avenue, I, I live uh, and have lived for the last 20 years in an inner city below the poverty line. Uh, 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 the median income in, in the neighborhood I live in uh, in Newark is, is $14,000 uh, per household. Um, and I went to go vote in Newark uh, in 2008 and there were lines around the polling place. I, I had never witnessed anything like it before. And when I went up to the back of the line in the polling place, I'm the mayor of the city. I roll up deep. I was rolling deep. I had like security officers with me and everything. And I know how genteel everybody is here in Aspen, but I'm from Jersey where we keep it real. And um, the woman at the end of the line looks at me and she doesn't say historic day, mayor. So nice to see you, mayor. She looks at me and just angrily sort of looks at me and goes, don't you think you're cutting in this line now? <laughs> You're going to wait like just the rest of us. You ain't special. And I'm, and I'm the mayor of the city. I've got cops around me. I look at the woman and I go, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hours to go vote. One year later, I go to vote and nobody is there. It is a ghost town. And I walk in. The poll worker looks lonely and I hug her. Uh, um, and and I, I wake up the next morning on a reality that was stunning where uh, in a blue state, we elect Chris Christie, and then this is what happens to me, which is exactly what's happening now. Everybody wanted to race to vilify the Republicans. I, I literally had people come when Chris Christie cut um, um, Planned Parenthood funding and we closed doors and lost access. People said, why are the Republicans doing to this, this to us? When, when Chris Christie cut the earned income tax credit, saying he wasn't gonna raise taxes, but he cuts the earned income tax credit, that means the only people that got a tax increase were working class families. Why are the Republicans doing this to us? We have epidemic asthma rates in inner cities in America. Black, black kids are, are, who get asthma are 10 times more likely to die from it than white children. 
And, and people are coming up to me when he pulls out of the regional greenhouse gas agreements, why are they doing this to us? And I look around at people and I'm saying, what are you talking about? The Republicans didn't do this to us. If we had just a fraction of the Obama turnout, a fraction, um, we would have won that election and we wouldn't be enduring this reality. So it's this moment where everybody's talking about the Republicans and the Republicans and the Republicans, what I'm really looking at is, is we as Democrats, and frankly, I, again, I, 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 at a time in America where I think we look too much at party lens, because I think that we have so much more in common than we do that divides us, that the real challenge for me is why are so many Americans not participating in this democracy? And if more people did, I mean, the, I, I, I just recently talked to Obama about this. And by the way, I miss Obama and her husband. <laughs> and really miss her husband. And I was sitting down with her husband and we were just talking about the fact, we were talking about the fact that, that this is a president and he was right, saying that this was a point where he was writing about this in his book, in, in the difference between the 2012 turnout of Democrats, forget the Republican party, everybody talked about the red wave that swept over America in 2014 where we lost the Senate. God, what was this red wave? What was this red wave? And I'm like, and, and, and the data just disproves that. There were about nine million less Republicans that voted between the general election, the, the, the presidential election in 2012 and the midterms, but something like 40 million less Democrats came out to vote. So as much as you want to say right now is the result of some kind of red wave or focus in on all that stuff, to me the biggest crisis in this country is a lack of democratic engagement. I don't want Democrats, I do want Democrats to do better, but my biggest concern is I know if more Americans were participating, engaging, I know that we have this horrible ignorance of one another's suffering. We literally have a common pain in this country, but we're lacking a common purpose. And so, to me, the, one of the biggest challenges that I see coming out of the last election, where I saw, even in the black community, I saw 10% less percent people turning out. In fact, that's what I was going to get you to talk about, was, was exactly that. I, I know you were. So let's talk about that. It exactly goes to my, to my question, which is we spent a lot of time, to your point, talking about the red wave. We spent a lot of time talking about white working class voters that showed up, voted for Donald Trump, maybe even they voted for Obama, voted for Trump this year. We've spent very little time talking about the fact that for the first time in 20 years, the percent of African-American turnout dropped. Dropped, uh, dropped, dropped dramatically. Dramatically. But it also, states. what we've seen for the last 20 years, it was consistently rising, and then for the first time it dropped. There were articles before the election about the most powerful voting bloc in America because they were voting yep. way above so what, the, was so black what women. what happened, and also Latino turnout did not increase. Asian-American turnout did not increase. So is the Obama coalition just the Obama coalition? It's not the Democratic coalition? Where, why did they, where, where, where were those voters and how do you engage those voters going forward? What were they not getting? Again, that, this idea, and I, I wanna keep saying this, common pain, but somehow we don't feel like we have a common sense of purpose in this country. And I, I think that all of us are beginning to feel, and this is something that I think President Trump um, so exploited which was the pain that people, the legitimate pain that people were feeling. I mean, I, I, one of the most painful moments for me with my dad was when after a shooting in Newark and I was living in some high rise uh, public housing projects at the time and my father who was born poor, he used to joke, he said, I couldn't afford to be poor, Corey, I was just Poe, P-O, I couldn't afford the other two letters, <laughs> was, was born in a time of segregation has stories that to me and my generation of, of blacks that, that un, in America unrecognizable in some ways. 
Um, he was born to a single mom, and he says to me, he goes, Corey, I worry that in this country, this is a, this is a man now who's his generation, civil rights generation, is handing it over to my generation, the hip-hop generation or the X generation, and he says to me, I really worry that a black kid born just like me today, um, uh, born poor to a single mom um, in a segregated environment, and we still have segregation, rampant segregation in America. It's just de facto, not de jure. Um, and he says, I worry that a kid born today just like me would have been better off if he was born in 1936 than if he was born today. Now, I'm a data guy, and when I was mayor, I used to say, God we trust, but everybody else bring me data. Um, <laughs> But I, I, when I look at the data, in some ways my father's wrong with African Americans, but in many ways he's right. When he was growing up, one out of every three black kids was not, unless we change something, going to go to prison. When he was growing up, the leading cause of death for young black boys was not murder. When he was growing up, believe this, social mobility in our country was rising compared to other countries, and now it's declining. I say that about black Americans, but I'm telling you, my generation, this is the shame of my generation, we the first time we've had 20, 30 years of stagnant wages. My generation inherited from our grandparents the best infrastructure on the planet Earth. Now one of the biggest complaints I get into New Jersey is just rail traffic into New York. You could have moved between the Northeast Corridor, between Boston and, and Washington, D.C. In the 1960s, those trains moved 30 minutes faster than they do now. We are a nation that had the best education system, K through 12, K through college on the planet Earth. Now we're, we've fallen out of the top 10. And so there is, there is tragic circumstances. Nobody's talking about the fact that overall life expectancy in America right now is going down, not just for black men, white men too. And so there is, there is a common pain in this country. But our, we're, our, for some reason, our politics is not speaking to that pain. And it's not just the Democratic Party, the Republican Party as well. We are not speaking to the, the, the pay. people do not feel like their politics is serving them. Well, and is it speaking to or is it actually solving? It's the problem that you're speaking to it, but you're not doing much to solve it. Well, I, so th I, I would say two parts of that are right. The, the first part is that, that we do have a sclerosis in Washington that there is a, a and I was a mayor and I, 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 I seared through partisanship. For me, I, I, and this is why I still live where I live right now, in a, in a, in a, in a community rich with spirit, rich with character, but um, uh, I think the only senator that lives in an inner city below the poverty line, because every day I'm reminded with the urgencies of, the, of this country, the unfinished business of this country. And yeah, when I walk outside every day, I get angry and get ready to get on the train to Washington that we're not getting stuff done. And when I was mayor, I didn't care about partisanship. I was just trying to serve poor people. And, and we found pragmatic ways in Newark to move the bar on education. You worked with Governor Christie. I worked with Governor Christie. I worked with the Manhattan Institute. I, I found if, if this was going to move things for poor Americans, in my city, 85% black and Latino, um, I didn't care who you were. If you could make things better, I was going to work with you. And if you were trying to hurt my communities, because me and Chris Christie had a whole lot of fights, I was going to work against you. And so in Washington, Somehow, when I know there's so much common ground, especially when you look at going back to the data, the World Economic Forum keeps data on competitiveness of democracies, what helps democracies gr economies grow and what hurts them. We are, we are just not doing the obvious things 
to grow jobs, grow our economy, that when I can have private conversations with people on both sides of the aisle, there's agreement, but we're not getting it done. And then the second thing, part of that point you're trying to make is, I can go through Hillary Clinton's plans for America, I could go to her website and pull down the policy plans that were brilliant. On the campaign trail with her, um, I, I was blown away um, when I, I, it had never happened before, I've sat with lots of presidential candidates, where she knew urban policy as well as I did, and knew ideas, we would have policy discussions that would get me so fired up that she would be the president this year. I mean, I got so excited on the campaign trail for, for her presidency. So I'm, it's not that she didn't have the better ideas, um, but, but we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't make people feel um, that she was the person that was, was gonna fight and get things done for her. And, and, and so again, my, my frustration right now is not necessarily simply with Washington. Um, it's how can we as a country get back to this understanding of a common sense of purpose. Forget parties for a second. That we're all in this together. That we belong to each other. That, that, we, that we have to work together because we are in a generational crisis right now where this is the first generation of Americans by the data that's not going to do better than their parents. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. He's interviewed by Amy Walter. She's national editor of the Cook Political Report. If you like today's show, check out Conservatism, the Republican Party, and President Trump. The episode features editors from National Review and the Weekly Standard. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts. Now back to our featured conversation with Senator Cory Booker and journalist Amy Walter. What's the political incentive, though, in Washington for you to cross the aisle? So, for example, if President Trump came to you right now and said, I'm going to work, I would like to work with you on X, Y, and Z issues. If you said yes, what kind of blowback would you get from your own party and constituency, And number one? And number two, do you believe that there is a hunger, a capacity for that kind of outreach, either from you to the White House or the White House to you? So, I mean, President Trump is, and we could spend the whole rest of his time talking about him, um, but I just want to put him aside for a second because uh, I don't want to wrap myself around that axle because, look, you had Chuck Schumer literally saying in the first days after his presidency, we will work with you on these issues and, and there has been no outreach. The, the thought of pre me getting a call from President Trump uh, um, saying anything, but uh, I heard you talking about me on MSNBC, Corey, you're, you know, um, uh, you know, I, it was after, after, actually after my convention speech, um, he made me feel really good because he had basically insulted pretty much every senator from John McCain to Elizabeth Warren, but he hadn't tweeted about me yet. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't until he, after my convention speech that I was like, yes, he sent me a mean tweet. Um, but I, this is how I greeted him. Chris Matthew, uh, 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 excuse me, Chris Cuomo on uh, the next morning on MSNBC said, what do you have, on CNN, what do, you, what do you have to say to him? And I said, what do I have to say to him after that mean tweet? I have to say, I love you. I don't want you to be my president 
but I'm, I'm not going to let you contort me to the point where I respond to you hate with hate or darkness with darkness. And so I want to put him aside for a second because I'm trying to love him every day um, and pray for him um, because I think that he has brought a toxin into our political climate that is so damaging um, that, that it's hard for me to even imagine him now after six months rising to a, a, a level of dignity and character that this country needs. But I will say this. The biggest darkness, the, the biggest sin of this country right now, um, the biggest cancer in this country is one that people don't talk about every day, but it's something that we have to find a bipartisan um, approach to. And I cannot in, in, impress upon this room enough that if there's anything that is eroding our democracy right now more an affront to our character and to the values which we swear, that literally I just came back from traveling in Eastern Europe, people look at me and wonder about our human rights violations in this area. It is the awful, sinful cancer of our criminal justice system. And it affects every element of our society. So we're here talking about democracies. Well, there are people who have done things that two of the last three presidents did, but they can't vote for the rest of their lives. In Florida, one out of five black people cannot vote. At swing state, one out of five black people, approaching one out of four, I just saw some data, because of felony disenfranchisement, for doing things that Congress people have done and joked about cavalierly. We are a country that puts children right now, as we sit here comfortably, there are children who have been in jail for over a year waiting for a trial and are being tortured. That's what other countries call what we do to children, putting them in solitary confinement. We have a nation that treats you better if you are rich and guilty than poor and innocent and a criminal justice system that is full of the most vulnerable people on our, on, on our planet, the, the mentally ill, the, 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 the drug addicted, uh, the poor, and, and outrageously disproportionately people of color. We have more people under criminal, super, more blacks under criminal supervision now than all the slaves in 1865. And so what Jim Crow couldn't do, our criminal justice system is doing right now. And it affects poverty. We have 20% less poverty in America 20% less poverty in America if we had criminal incarceration rates the same as our industrial peers. Why? Because when people come out of prison for doing nonviolent drug offenses that senators could have done, that presidents have done, we say to them, the ABA says 40,000 40, collateral consequences. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get a loan from a bank. You can't get a job. You can't get food stamps. You can't get public housing. It drives families into poverty like most folks wouldn't understand. And the last thing I'll say about this which, which enrages me, and this is what I had a conversation with just when I was overseas, when people were talking about those, we were talking about the comments that, that high-level political officials have said that they travel around the country, and they come home to our airports, and they look like developing nations. We have, we have shocked the planet Earth while our critical infrastructures have been crumbling, but the one area we have shocked humanity, because no one in humanity's history has ever done what we've done, we only have 4 or 5% of the globe's population, but we have 25% of the globe's prison population. How do we accomplish that? By investing trillions of dollars while our roads crumbled, our bridges crumbled, trillions of dollars in building prisons. A new prison every 10 days from the time I was in, col in, in college to the time I was a mayor of the city of New York. And we don't see this. We don't see the suffering of our fellow Americans. And so you want to tell me why black voter turnout's going down? You want to know why? 
Last weekend, I was in Alabama. Why is the senator from New Jersey going to Alabama? Because I don't get it how in our country, poor black communities from Louisiana to Alabama to North Carolina to even in Newark are living in conditions where we have a hateful hypocrisy where nobody in here would allow these conditions to exist in their, in their communities. And, and, when I, and when I would sit in churches, I must have been in six churches last weekend, black churches, having senior citizens begging me, no one will listen to us, what with, with corporate villainy where they put landfills in our communities. And now we can't even hang our clothes outside because of the stench in the clothes when they're drying. Where we have, I literally went to a place in, in, in Louisiana called Cancer Alley, where they just released EPA data where the toxins, the carcinogens in the air, are hundreds of times more than the legal allowable limits. And nobody seems to care. This is violence. In the 60s, we all raised our consciousness because we saw the billy clubs hitting poor black kids. But now, in America, community after community, and I'll say this one thing, and I know yeah. this, but I have to get this off my chest. I go, when I traveled around for Secretary Clinton, and when I go to black communities for, uh, uh, for other candidates, I have black leaders, local leaders, that will pull me aside and say, what the hell? Y'all just show up when it's election time. But right now, everybody thinks, can think of Flint as synonymous with injustice. Reuters just released a report. Where's the outrage? Where's the marching in the streets that over, that over a thousand other jurisdictions have lead levels in our kids' lead, blood that's four times higher than the Flint lead levels in kids' blood? When I was mayor of Newark, I, I, they, we wanted to create urban gardens to deal with, with, with f food deserts and to give guys, uh, uh, formerly incarcerated people, jobs. And I started making these, clearing entire city blocks to plant gardens. And the state comes in and says, you can't plant in the soil because it's too toxic. And so I, I, this is the problem. The poverty of empathy in this country is, is getting to a point where, yeah, there are white folks in, in, in factory towns who don't understand. While in Germany, they come up with plans. We have this, we have this arrogance of the college dream in this country, where two-thirds of Americans don't have college degrees and they're made to feel like second-class citizens. Well, what are they doing in our competitor nations? They're not making people feel lesser. They're pouring money and resources into apprenticeship programs that are actually connecting people to work here in America. We got five million jobs waiting to be filled. When I met with manufacturers in Newark, the biggest complaint to me was they couldn't find people to fill actually awaiting jobs. So we have the capacity to solve our problems, but we have this poverty of empathy that lets things fester to the point where Americans don't believe their politics works for them anymore. And yet criminal justice reform was one of the few bipartisan agreements you have folks very far on the right, who have been working on criminal justice reform, very far on the left. This was the one issue where we thought we were going to get some bridging, some bipartisanship. Where are we in that? And why can't it happen if you have the Koch brothers and their political organization agreeing that this is a crisis and liberals agreeing this is a crisis? Where is the solution? Why so, can't it happen? So, so there's two quick answers to that. One is, so I'm a mayor that is now a senator. And, and there, I can go to criminal justice reform. I can tell you a lot of other bipartisan areas that I've been able to find to work and frankly, have gotten bills passed with Republicans. And so this idea that there's not a possibility, a potential to come together and get things done. When I first got to the Senate, Chuck Grassley, 
was was sounding a little like Jeff Sessions in preaching against the kind of things that I was finding common ground with with Rand Paul. And so I went to work for over two years. Mark Holden, who's the, the, the Corporation Counsel for the Koch brothers, he is a friend. I, 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 I think the, the dark money that the Koch brothers pour into the system is, is insidious. The things that they're fighting for are insidious, many of them, but we found common ground on criminal justice reform. I had Grover Norquist in my office. I had Newt Gingrich in my office. Um, and, and so we got a bill done. We got it to the, to, out of committee. And, and it didn't get, didn't get to the floor. And, and why is that? Well, most people seem to think that um, all the things that empowered me to get to Washington, and when I say that, it's not just the amazing people of the state of New Jersey. Um, um, Jer Jersey in the house. It's not just the amazing people in the state of New Jersey. The other thing got me to, to why am I the fourth elected African-American in the history of the United States since Reconstruction? Well, I'm very conscious when I walk onto that Senate floor that a whole lot of activism got to the, got, had to happen and engagement had to happen. Now, do you think that when they were shutting down civil rights amendment after civil rights amendment after civil rights amendment, do you think Strom Thurmond, who has the longest filibuster in, in in, uh, in American history, against uh, American history period, and it was against, it was sort of a racist rant, in my opinion, against the Civil Rights Bill. Do you think one day him and other Republicans and Democrats in the Senate suddenly said, well, let's have the Civil Rights Bill. We've now changed our minds. No. It was people who understood that change, real change never comes from Washington. It has to come to Washington. And, and so power concedes nothing without a demand. And, and so my thing is, if the American public who, and I'm telling you this, come to me to prisons. I, I was one, three weeks ago, I was in, in a federal prison in Connecticut, asked the warden, it was a women's lockup. I looked at this warden, tough woman of a women's incarceration. I asked her, how many of the women here are victims of sexual violence, are victims of sexual assault? And she looks at me, this, this incredible leader, this warden, and she looks at me and she goes, Corey, about 95%. And, and, and so I've already told you how bad the systems are, but yet we don't have people who are lining up to call Congress people and senators demanding that they do something about this moral outrage. And so, yeah, we didn't get gun legislation passed in the Senate. We fell short by one vote, and it was horrible. And if you live, there was a wonderful, wonderful moment, and I'm not talking about the hideous, hateful moment where a, a, a congressperson was shot and others, horrible, tragic moment. But what I thought was great is that America stopped. It paid attention. A shooting in America and everybody stopped. CNN, Fox, running it, wall-to-wall -wall coverage. I thought that was great. But on my block in Newark, in about a week before that, there was a guy shot across the street from where I live. Right now while we're sitting here comfortably, 30 people will be murdered, more than 100 people shot by gun violence in this country. You think CNN gives a damn? Because most of all, it's people in communities like mine. And so we failed on a couple gun votes, which is horrific. But are we going to give up? Did they give up for workers' rights, civil rights? Did the suffragettes give up when, it kept, when, 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 when the equal rights to vote failed? No. And so that's why I keep saying, if we cast our issues in terms of right and left, Republican and Democrat, no. These are American issues. But my point about our founding ideals is this, I hope we reflect on the fact, number one, 
our founders in their genius were, 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 were profoundly imperfect human beings. I mean, the documents reek with the bigotry and hatred of our time. Native Americans in the Declaration of Independence are referred as savages. Women aren't referred to it at all. Stokely Carmichael used to always say, constitute, constitute. I can only say three-fifths of the word. But, <laughs> but, but the genius of our founders is they, they seem to get something that we have, my generation right now, as I look at our political landscape, we're losing. The founders in the Declaration of Independence put forth the greatest, I think in humanity, the greatest declaration of interdependence. They, they elevated this idea of love. They may not put that word in there, but to me, love, patriotism is love, and, and you can't love your country without loving your country, men and women. And love is not a being verb, it's not a soft word. Love demands sacrifice, it demands service, and it demands this understanding that my destiny's interwoven with yours. And so how did they end the, end the Declaration of Independence? They ended by saying, if we're gonna make it in this country, we must, and now I quote, mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Think about that in the context where we are so divorced from each other as a nation that in neighboring towns, we, we, we fail to see the suffering of our fellow Americans. Think about it for a second when we think about this even in a political context. That's why I refuse, as much as Donald Trump will demean and degrade others, I refuse to sink so low as to hate him. In fact, I tell this all the time, my lowest moment, one of my, one of my lowest moments in the last presidential election wasn't just the mean and vicious words of Donald Trump. It was actually in a presidential primary where I watched my governor, and again, I could write a dissertation on my disagreements with him, but I have him on my phone right now. If I called him up and said, I need to talk to you, he would answer my call. And I watched my governor get pilloried, pilloried by other Republican candidates for doing what? What was his sin? It was hugging Barack Obama. And when was that hug happening? It was after a natural disaster in which many people died. I lost three lives in Newark. Billions of dollars of property damage. People lost their whole lives. And Barack Obama flew in in this immediate aftermath, walking down the steps, and the two men hugged. Now look, I'm a hugger, and it wasn't even a good hug. It was one of those uncomfortable sort of male hugs. But imagine we've gotten to the point in our American conversation where we have vilified each other so much, American toward American, that touching someone of a different party is something that's considered the sin. And I want Americans to understand that the real sin is not the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and I will be the first to protest what the Republican Party is trying to do and fight against it and call it craven and evil, the, the health care bill. I'll be the first to do that. But I know deeper than that and symptomatic of the culture we have right now is this problem we have in America where we are so now divorced from each other that we don't see our humanity and we have lost in, in too much of a way that pledge we have to each other. 
to, to put forth for you my fortune, to put forth for you my life, to put forth for you for my sacred honor, to understand that if you are experiencing injustice in Alabama, it undermines my injustice in New Jersey. If you are experiencing a villainy in North Carolina, I can't live comfortably uh, in Colorado, that we are all in this together. And if we allow our politics to tear us apart, or even worse, our, our self-interest or even worse, the only thing necessary for evil to be triumphant is for good people to do nothing if we allow our apathy to be the way where we can't even go to the polls. Then the whole idea of America, which is not about our founding documents, the idea of this country, trust me, if it was about those founding documents, I may still be in slavery. The truth of this country has been the spirit of America has lived in the hearts of Americans who even if it wasn't in their interest, they still left Iowa and joined King to march. Goodman and Cheney and Schwarner, Jews and Christians willing to die together for my right to vote. That's what the spirit of this country is about that we, that we right now seem to be losing. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Cory Booker is a U.S. Senator from New Jersey. Amy Walter is a longtime political journalist based in Washington. The Aspen Ideas Festival captured the conversations of our time, happening at dinner tables, street corners, and workplaces across the country. This month and next, we're bringing you more of these discussions. Instead of one episode, watch for two to drop every week. We hope these episodes expose you to new perspectives and ideas. Our next show drops on Tuesday. Back to the featured conversation. Here's Amy Walter. I want to make sure we get a couple questions in. I want to go right up here. Hello. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about you as a mayor and um, what's happening like in Jackson, Mississippi with the Jackson plan and Chokwe Lumumba and like what you think the Democratic Party has to learn from people making radical change at a municipal level. I, I think that the best ideas going on in America right now are going on where mayors are doing them. And um, when I was mayor, uh, in fact, Mayor Bloomberg, I think, is doing something really brilliant, which is trying to pull together other mayors and see the best innovation ideas. If there's an issue globally, some mayor has figured out what to do about it. I mean, we lo lowered our carbon footprint in Newark just through common sense ideas. We showed how you could take returning offenders and literally almost drop their recidivism rates down to zero uh, or, low, or, or save tons of money. Um, so you take climate change, you take healthcare delivery. Um, I was able to do a pro pilot program where we were forcing pharmaceutical prices lower for Newark residents in order to get them incentivized to go into primary care, which ultimately drive, drove down health care costs for everybody. So mayors are the great innovators in America right now, and I'm so, I'm so proud, even on – but this is where I worry. We've got an administration that wants to undermine mayoral innovation uh, or stop doing the kind of incentives for mayors to do it right. And I see this in everywhere from immigration issues uh, all the way to uh, uh, police accountability efforts. Uh, they're trying to roll back um, on the kind of things that incentivize as well as pressure localities to do the right thing in terms of civil rights and, and, and justice and innovation. I think many are probably frustrated by Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and by extension Nancy Pelosi, 
and the leadership in the Republican Party in the House as well. Um, you referenced that uh, Schumer gave a list at the beginning that are things that he'd be willing to work with the president on. Why do members of, of Congress not demand more from their leaders to work on things that they don't agree on and to bridge more gaps? Uh, again, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that the most important thing to get people to work together, and I saw this with the opioid crisis, is, is when people engage in pressuring their people to say, you find solutions on this. It is so easy. And again, I can write a dissertation and spend a long time explaining to you all the dysfunction in Washington that, that brings about the irrationality. But what I just want to push back on a little bit is this idea that something is going to change without me changing. And, and uh, uh, so I understand that um, that, and, and trust me, Mitch McConnell's got the ball. He's the leader. He controls the floor and what comes to the floor. And I've had moments where I, I probably have I, one of my easiest layup bills. I got a bicameral, bipartisan bill on doing something that corporate America has already started to do, which is just saying, hey, if a person comes home from prison and they're applying for a job, don't make them check a box at the beginning of the employment process that says that they have a nonviolent drug offense for doing the same things the same last two of the last presidents did. Wait until the end of the time when you offer a conditional offer, then they have to to, to disclose the criminal criminal uh, past criminal conviction. And what it does is it drives up employment rates for formerly incarcerated. Well, the number one employer in the country is the federal government and the federal contractors. And so I got Daryl Issa and uh, Ron Johnson bipartisan, bicameral, but we can't get the bill to the floor, which would probably get in the 90s of people voting for it. And I can tell you a lot of things about the dysfunction in the Senate that will not allow that bill to the floor. But I know one thing, if more Americans were calling up and demanding that we do something about getting people hired in this country, pick your issue, more would get done. And, and that's the problem, I, 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 and, I, and I say this everywhere I go. I tell people, never allow your inability to do everything to undermine your determination to do something in the cause of this country. And before you talk about an issue in Washington, first ask yourself, what one thing am I doing different than last year to try to push this issue forward? Because Alice Walker said it, the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And so all I say is, if you don't like the dysfunction in Washington, what are you doing about the corrosive effects of money in politics? Have you joined an organization that's doing something about it? What about the way that Congress, most people get reelected because of the way we draw our district lines? It's horrible. Are you going to join me in condemning it, or will you join others in actually doing something about it? So that's my hope, is if everybody leaves here today and just remembers the two, 10 two-letter words that were taught to me that are being evidenced by lots of people in this room, because lots of activists are here, are evidence are, were taught to me as a, as, a, as a young activist in Newark, the 10 two-letter words about the world, because I always say this, <laughs> if there's a problem out there, you have two choices, to accept it as it is or take personal responsibility for changing it. And those two 10, 10 two-letter words are, if it is to be, it's up to me. Leave here and, and do something about the issue you're complaining about in Washington. What, think to yourself, what could I be doing? Even if it's just calling up Mitch McConnell's office and telling him how you feel by not letting my bill get to the floor. Thank you. <laughs> so just how do Democrats get their groove back? It, it, it can't be just 
organizing and showing up and being motivated because ever since Trump got elected, we've seen more of that than almost ever. So tell me how we get our groove back. So um, I appreciate that people came up to me before this thing that wanted to talk about the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party. And I, I just desperately, desperately want to talk about people and you happen to be Democrats because I'm a grassroots political person and that's how I came up. And the, the way we changed the course of my city, my city now 30 years into it, um, uh, excuse me, after 60 years of declining population, of declining schools, of, of seeing wealth leave, um, all the challenges that Newark saw. Right now, if you came back to my city, you will see a growing population, the busy, biggest economic development period since the 1960s. Um, uh, growth, I can give you all the data. But I, I tell people that that was a political movement in Newark and a lot of folks doing it, but, but even deeper than the political movement, it was an activist movement. And, and, and this is what, you cannot expect to change. You just can't unless you engage more. And so I just want everybody to take, to take responsibility for your party and do something. And I'll tell you at that in just, just one paragraph. So when I came to the Senate, my mom, my dad had just died. And so my mom went to have me meet with John Lewis. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful day for me to become a United States Senator, shocking for my family. And, and, and my mom always says, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. And, um, um, and, and so my mom's having a field day. And she, we go visit with John Lewis because she wants to be, be grounded before I take an oath of office to remember what got me there. And I, last week I sat with John Lewis on the steps of the Capitol talking about this health care bill. And I didn't know, he. Didn't, I thought I had told him this beforehand, but he literally can say, but for what I did, you wouldn't be a senator. And the reason why he could say that is because when my family went to move into Harrington Park, New Jersey in 1969, they wouldn't show my family homes. And, and we got a white couple through a fair housing council and a group of lawyers to, to, to fight this, and the white couple would show up to, my, to a look at a house right after my parents would. My parents would find out it was sold, the white couple would find out it's still for sale. We, my parents fell in love with the house, they were told it was sold, the white couple went in, put a bid on the house, the bid was accepted. On the day of the closing, instead of the white couple showing up, did the, uh, my father and a volunteer lawyer show up. The real estate agent is so upset, he's violating the law, so upset he stands up, doesn't just say, mea culpa, I'm wrong, punches my dad's lawyer in the face, and sigs a dog on my dad. Rigor morale, hap crazy stuff happens. Long story short, we move into this town, as my father called us, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. And my dad tells the story all the time when I'm growing up. Eventually, every time he would tell the story, the dog would get bigger. Soon he was telling me, son, as I'd walk around the house, you know, taking everything, taking the, my, my luxurious privileges for granted, he'd be like, boy, I had to fight a pack of wolves for you to get in this house. So I'm on the steps with John Lewis telling him, um, I said, sir, I, I didn't know that John didn't know this. And John Lewis, he's my colleague, but I don't call him John. Uh, sir, Congressman Lewis. I said, I don't know if you know this, but when I went back to, to fact check this story, I'd heard all my life. I didn't want to have sort of like a Ben Carson moment when I wrote my book. Um, so I'm fact checking everything. And um, I find the lawyer who organized this sting operation and I ask him why, as a white guy who just started, anybody who's done a startup, he just started his law firm, 
was busy as heck, had family at home, was, was just struggling to make ends meet and keep the doors of his law firm open. I said, why at that point in your life would you start representing black families and going through these elaborate sting operations to help families like me move in? And he goes, wow, well, I remember the exact day. This is an 84-year-old man, Arthur Lessman, God rest his soul, he's now passed away. And I said, I said, why? And he goes, Corey, I remember the day. And I thought he was going to say like July 4th. He goes, no, it was a Monday. I remember the, it was a Monday. And I'm like, okay, sir, why do you remember it was a Monday? And he goes, Corey, because that Sunday, I was sitting on my couch comfortably watching my TV. And I saw these people in Alabama trying to cross a bridge. And then they got beaten by billy clubs. And it so moved me that I went to the work the next day and told my partner we had to close our law firm and go to Alabama. And he laughed at me and said we couldn't afford it. So we said, okay, well, we can't address this issue, but maybe we should do the best we can where we are with what we have. And they got on the phone, calling around, found the Fair Housing Council, and they got a case file handed to them, Carrie and Carolyn Booker, my parents. And, and so what I say to all these people who worry about the Democratic Party, I just hope that people understand the power that they have. Here's marchers on a bridge standing up for an injustice in a different part of the continent that instantaneously their one act of righteous defiance changed the heart of somebody hundreds and hundreds of miles away, but love didn't stop there. Triggering that one heart then changed the destiny of family, children yet unborn. That's one action. I, I was proud to give these marchers the, the Congressional Medal of Honor, and as I looked at them all, think how I felt. You had no clue that taking one stand would transform outcomes. I would not be sitting here right now if it was for that one act of love. And so if we have that power as agents of this democracy that needs love, remember, patriotism is love. If we have that power sitting on our couches and, and, and get caught up in what I call a state of sedentary agitation, when we're so upset about what we're seeing, but don't realize that this country has gotten to where we are because people Ordinary Americans who did extraordinary things, who joined the story of this country, which is a conspiracy of love. They went to church basements. They were Quakers that went to barnyards, to, that did the best infrastructure project this country's ever seen, the Underground Railroad. There are people that, that decided, you know what, those, those Irish working in, in slums, organizing for, for workers' rights, they got something going on there. I'm going to be a part of that fight. I don't know what it is, but we can do more as agents of this democracy. And the, uh, we, we are the best country on the planet Earth. I worry, and, and the only thing literally separating us from, from rising in my generation to the heights of my grandparents' generation in terms of leading the globe, the only thing stopping us is not can we, it's do we have the collective will. And that necessary, important, unequivocal thing that has to happen is for Americans, as diverse as we are, different races, different religions, native-born Americans, immigrants, the critical ingredient that has to happen, the biggest worry I have right now, is that we've stopped seeing each other. That Ralph Ellison's idea of invisibility is coming back where we can't even see the suffering of people that often are just 15, 20 miles away from us. That we've somehow forgotten that we are all in this together, that the very hallmark of our country, e pluribus unum, is something nice that we see printed around the country, but we're not living it by thinking to ourselves, what is my one act of love going to be today? Because I'm telling you this, the biggest thing you can do in any day 
The biggest thing you can do in any day is most often going to be a small act of love, of decency, of defiance, in the service of someone that's not you or your family. That's the story of America. And for the Democratic Party, as well as for this great republic, it is the only thing that can save us if we realize that we are one nation under God, indivisible, and fight for liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Okay, we have time for one more question. There's anyone who wants... Okay, very last question back there, and then we will wrap this up. Senator Booker, education is the key to solving many of the problems that you have talked about. The traditional public school systems in our urban cores have failed students for decades. While I know you personally have been supportive of education reform, the Democratic Party has not. So how can the Democratic Party get on the right side of this issue and lead on it? So I, I, I bristle at that, um, at that characterization of the Democratic Party. When you send kids to school who are nutritionally unfit to learn because their parents are struggling with an environment where they were, we're cutting food stamps, when we're sending kids to school who are, in terms of their health, how many tens of thousands of inner city poor Americans have elevated blood lead levels? When you send kids to school that are emotionally traumatized because we can't stop gunshots, when you're sending kids to school who, whose parents are routinely caught in the worst, in a trap that no other industrialized country is, my friend um, uh, Natasha Laurel, people call her Mama Tasha because she's so great, she works at an IHOP, and when her son is, has asthma and is rushed to the hospital, she has to decide whether to leave the, the, the place of work and not get paid sick leave, and so she stresses over leaving and not being able to meet rent or, and going to see her child. All the things that the Democratic Party fights for that would give kids a fighting chance, our competitors are kicking our tails because they now understand that investing in early childhood education is something that's universal in Germany. I could go through our competitors and get it right, but we somehow don't understand that the, the time between the pregnancy and the second year is where the majority of brain development's done I could tell you how to save seven government dollars right now, and it's just something called nurse-family partnerships in America, at-risk parents, if they just have somebody go home, but that's something that even a fiscal conservative should get behind. All the things that is happening in Congress since I've been there in four years that are undermining my kids in Newark or Camden or Patterson to succeed in schools, all of those things were being fought on in Congress right now. So if I'm going to celebrate the party that wants to prepare kids, that understands the urgency of what's happening for children, that are fighting for prenatal care and stopping the Republicans from rescinding Medicaid, the education party is the Democratic Party. And, and so, yeah, I'm a guy on the ground that fought for education innovation. And yeah, I've taken criticism from my own party for it. But... And I'm proud of the results. Newark has been picked as the number one city in America for beat the odd schools, high poverty, high performance. Newark is the number four city, according to Brookings, for giving parents public school choice, quality choice. We have seen, since I was mayor and decided to step out on a limb and innovate locally, 
If you're a black kid in Newark, your chances of going to a high-performing school went up 300%. Yeah, I think there are ideas in Newark that I want to see go to other places in this country. But I, I bristle when people criticize Democrats because I know this in my city. If my kids got adequate prenatal care, if my kids weren't living in a time where literally their air, their water, and their soil is poisoned by toxins, if my kids didn't have emotional trauma from the levels of violence that are in our communities, I could go through all the things that would give my kids better fighting chances in public education than now. So to put everything on the schools and say public schools are failing, that is just not the right picture. What is failing is this country that, that, that says we love our kids, but they forget love is not words, it's what are we doing for kids? And if you wanna see what our competitors are doing, look around the planet Earth and see how love is being manifest through policies. How can we be a country, as wealthy as we are, that we still have 20% of our kids born in poverty? And just that magic thing, whether a family is below poverty or above poverty, if you're below poverty, only nine out of every 100 kids will go to college. So. I don't want simplistic solutions. If just the Democrats would embrace charter schools, that's going to be great. Well, you know what? The, I, I really like to have those conversations with people because there's so much simplicity in educational conversations. Most people don't even know what they're talking about. There's differences. The differences, but, you know, I always say, everyone wants to talk about charters or non-charters. Let's just talk about great education and not great education. But I'm proud to be a Democrat because when it comes to fighting for kids, I don't care who you are in the spectrum of my party, we are fighting for kids on the things that will really make a difference in their education. Uh, um, and I hope that we as a country can catch up to our economic competitors who understand that the most valuable natural resource in a global knowledge-based economy, the most valuable natural resource on the planet Earth is not oil or gas or coal, it's the genius of our children. And the record in America right now for cultivating that genius, because remember, genius is equally distributed in America. There's as many geniuses being born in Camden, New Jersey, as, as in Beverly Hills, California. But somehow we take that precious genius and beauty and brilliance and we squander it because we're not there for those children, especially in their earliest years. Thank you everybody for coming. Cory Booker is a US Senator representing New Jersey. Previously, he served two terms as mayor of Newark. Amy Walter provides weekly political analysis for the PBS NewsHour. She's the national editor of the Cook Political Report. Their conversation was held on July 1, 2017 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel and NPR One. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.